Scripture reading this afternoon is from Job 23 and 24. Get a, a break from Job for the next few weeks, but not just yet. As we look at Job's next speech in chapters 23 and 24 and his longing for the coming of God's kingdom. Job 23, read beginning at verse 1. This is in response to what we heard from Eliphaz. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter, my hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique. And who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me. And many such things are with him. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me, because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread wine presses yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong. There are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. 
The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he disguises his face in the dark. They break into houses which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. For the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. They should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth so that no one would uh, turn into the way of their vineyards. As drought and heat consume the snow waters, so the grave consumes those who have sinned. The womb should forget him. The worm should feed sweetly on him. He should be remembered no more. And wickedness should be broken like a tree. For he preys on the barren who does not bear and does no good for the widow. But God draws the mighty away with his power. He rises up, but no man is sure of life. He gives them security, and they rely on it, yet his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted for a little while, then they are gone. They are brought low. They are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. Now, if it is not so... Who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? And then we'll read that in connection with Lord's Day 48 from the Heidelberg Catechism on page 895 in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnals. Lord's Day 48, it's question 123, and we'll read that together Responsively, this is in uh, the, the context of an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. And it asks, What does the second petition mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church, destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. Beloved, as we think about the meaning of that petition, the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, there's really two parts to it. There is the vindication of God's people, and there is the judgment of God's enemies, the the preservation and increase of his church, and then also the destruction of every force which revolts against him and against his holy word. And we see both of these two things in Job 23 and Job 24. In the first of those two chapters, we see Job longing for vindication before God whom he loves, And in the next chapter, chapter 24, we we see Job longing for the judgment of the wicked who were exalted for a little while, but will then be brought low. Um, Christopher Ashe, his his commentary on Job is very helpful in in framing this this, uh, section along these two desires, Job's desire for the vindication of the righteous, but then also the judgment of the wicked. And so look with me uh, first at Job's longing for the vindication of God's people. 
not really a vindication of himself, but by implication, all of God's people. In uh, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 23, he desires to, uh, to see God and to stand before him righteous. In verses 8 to 12 of that same chapter, then, he, he envisions this happening and longs by faith for that day when he will come forth as gold. And then in verses 13 to 17, he sort of, sort of qualifies this confidence with a, a statement about his reverential fear, the greatness of this God. So first, his desire to see God and stand before him righteous. He laments in verses 2 and 3 that this is not yet the case. He says, as he's said before, that his complaint is, is bitter. And that second part of verse 2 carries the idea of, of God's hand being heavy upon him. The same kind of thing he's been lamenting throughout the book, that he wants to, to know uh, where to find God, verse 3, so that he might come before his seat, so that he might plead his case and be declared righteous before God. Job says he wants to plead his case and fill his mouth with arguments, the same kind of thing he said back in chapter 10. But now is confident that when he does this, he he says, I know the words that God would answer me with. That's what he says in verse 5. I understand what he would say to me, and it wouldn't be the case that God would just contend with me in his great power, but no, he would take notice of me. He would pay attention to me. For there in his presence, an upright man would be able to reason with him and be delivered by the judge. And Job is able to voice this confidence because he believes that a redeemer and defender will stand in his place, an advocate who will plead his cause as a son of man pleads for his friend. And so he has this, this deep and growing confidence that God will deliver him. And yet, in the pain of his present experience, Job is longing for that to happen. He's confident, and yet at the same time, he's longing for this final vindication and says that his complaint is bitter. And one of the things that we learn from this is that even in the confidence of gospel hope, the kind of gospel hope that Job spoke of back in chapter 19, even in the confidence of gospel hope, since that hope is not yet fully realized, there's still groaning. There's still lament. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Job, who we've been following for, for some 22 chapters now, he, he's already come to the, the climax of faith in, in chapter 19, one of the greatest confessions of faith that we read anywhere in the Old Testament, and yet even though he can say with assurance, this I know, that my Redeemer lives, still his complaint is bitter, and God's hand is heavy upon him. And so he engages in lament and, and longing. We learn from this that even we who believe the gospel, even for us, there is a place in our vocabulary, there is a place in our liturgy for lament. We're not dispensationalists who believe that the Old Testament was so different from the new that we no longer need the Psalms or that the the joy of the gospel somehow renders lament obsolete. But one of the things that we learn again from Job is that it's possible on the one hand to say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the same time, God's hand is heavy upon me and my complaint is bitter. 
Job continues to teach us about worship in a minor key. And as he teaches us this, as, as he laments, I want you to notice, what is it that is most on Job's heart? It's not merely the sad circumstances of his life. It's not merely his, his children or his health or his friends or his possessions, but that which, which causes Job to cry out in verse 3 with that, that expression of longing, oh, that is his desire to find God. It's interesting that that expression, oh, that, occurs about a dozen times throughout the book of Job, more than any other book in the Old Testament, always expressing deep longing. But the object of Job's deep longing here is God himself. He says that he longs to meet with God, oh, that I might find him. And here we see something of what the true, uh, the heart of the true child of God desires. Not the prosperity that his friends keep dangling in front of him like a carrot. Not the prosperity that Satan says is the only reason Job worships God. But the deepest desire of his heart is the presence of God. The deepest desire in the heart of Job is communion with God. Verse 6, to be noticed by him. And verse 7, to be righteous before him. So boys and girls, Job teaches us here about what the most important thing in life is. It's not having all the best things. It's, it's not perfect health or perfect success. It's not friends or family. It's not happiness in the way that our world defines happiness. But the most important thing for which our hearts should long is God himself. And to be righteous before him. The most important thing with which you should concern yourself is the question, am I right with God? And Job, in in verses 8 through 12, shows his confidence that he will be declared righteous. That even though he looks for God and, and cannot find him because this God for whom he looks is invisible and transcendent and, and he cannot behold him, verse 9, he cannot see him, He expresses a confidence that God can see him. We ask our children a very simple question from the child's catechism, can you see God? And the answer is no, but he sees me. And that's the very thing that Job confesses in verse 10, that even though he cannot see God, verse 9, God knows the way that Job will take. Even as Job longs for this meeting with God and cannot find him, God knows the way that Job will take and he will find him. And when he has tested him, Job says, I will come forth as gold. Here we see the confidence of the believer was found in his Redeemer that when he stands before God and is tried, he will come forth as gold. And Job goes on talking about um, holding fast to God's steps and and not turning aside from his way, but treasuring the words of his mouth in verses 11 and 12. And I don't think what we have here is Job now confessing his confidence in being justified according to works. Rather, he has confessed in several places throughout the book that he's a sinner. And yet, because of his Redeemer, God will seal up his transgression in a bag and, and cover over his iniquity. That's what he said back in Job fourteen seventeen. Job's hope is in the gospel 
of unmerited grace. And yet he also understands that the true faith which takes hold of God's unmerited grace in the gospel is an obedient faith. That as we say in Lord's Day 32 or, or Canons 510, we are assured of our faith by its fruits. And though the fundamental ground of our assurance is faith in the promise of the gospel and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in us, a third ground is a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. And that's what Job speaks of in verses 11 and 12. That trusting in the grace of God, the same trust in God's grace that he showed in his commitment to sacrifice and atonement back in chapter 1, trusting in God's grace He follows his ways. And having a clear conscience before God and and treasuring the words from his mouth, which include the promises of God's grace, like we have in in Genesis 3.15, treasuring those even more than necessary food, Job is confident that he will stand before God righteous. Job here shows us the power of a clear conscience. And as we read here of, of this old saintly believer and his clear conscience before God, as God gives us this example in his word, it's meant to force us to ask ourselves, can I say with him that believing in the promise of the gospel and treasuring it more than the food which sustains my life, that I have not departed from his word or turned from his ways? Job is here calling us by his life and by his words to have this same sort of confidence through grace-empowered obedience. He's calling us to love God's word and follow his ways and telling us that this serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and good works, Canons 5.10, is a ground for the assurance that he expresses in verse 10. An assurance that is nevertheless a holy And a reverent assurance, as he goes on to make clear in verses 13 to 17, where he now speaks of God's uniqueness, and of God's immutability, of his power to do whatever he wants and whatever he's appointed. So considering the greatness of God in in verses 13 and 14, Job says in verse 15, Therefore I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I fear him. And he recognizes that this God who he longs to be justified before is a consuming fire and so reminds us that his hope to be justified before him is not a light or trivial thing where we just breeze into God's presence, but he reminds us that this God is holy. And yet still he believes that he'll be justified before him. And this is Job's longing all throughout chapter 23 for that that vindication where he will stand before God righteous. And as our Belgic Confession says, his total redemption will then be accomplished and he will receive the fruits of his labor and of the trouble he suffered and his innocence will be openly recognized by all. It's Article 37. I thought about reading it along with Lord's Day 48 as, as both of those articles set before us the hope of kingdom come of God's vindication of the righteous on the one hand, but also of the terrible vengeance that God will bring on the evil ones who tyrannized and oppressed and tormented them in this world. That's what Job turns to next in chapter 24, where he longs for the judgment 
of the wicked. And throughout this speech, he is is crying out from the depth of his soul for kingdom come. He is desiring the kingdom in its full manifestation. And so even as he longs for the vindication of the righteous in his bitter complaint of 23 verse 2 and, and all throughout that chapter, he also laments in chapter 24 the fact that the other side of that has not yet come either. The judgment of the wicked. The way the the ESV translates 24 verse 1 is, uh, why are not the times of judgment kept by the Almighty, and why do those who know him never see his days? Job is saying, just as I long for the day when I'll be vindicated before you, I also long for the day when the wicked, of whom I spoke in chapter 21, will be judged. Why do those who know you never see the day in which you judge the wicked. So Job is asking. Just as a side note, you, you see what, what Job is, is really doing here is he's picking up where he left off back in chapter 21 where he spoke of how the wicked do prosper and how their judgment is not in this life but in the life to come. And these two chapters are really the continuation of that where he now calls out to God as if to say, when will you bring about that day? And one application of this is is that Job really doesn't engage with the foolish and false accusations of Eliphaz in chapter 22. Because sometimes that kind of folly is not even worth engaging. And so he just carries on with his speech about justice not being fully sorted out until glory. And basically just just, uh, cries out of these chapters, ignoring what Eliphaz has said, cries out in these chapters for God to hasten the day when his kingdom will fully come. And much like the the lament genre that we find in the Psalms or, or even... Uh, the Psalms of Judgment, what, what Job goes on to do in these next verses is to name the evils that are committed by the wicked as he rehearses the evil that takes place and longs for justice. And so he speaks of, of crimes against the poor and the widow and the orphan. He says in verse 2 that people have moved boundary markers that, that are supposed to separate land and by moving those boundary markers have seized the land of others for themselves. They have taken away violently the farm animals on which those same people rely. They have taken away the donkey of the orphan. They've taken the widow's ox as a pledge, seizing her only means of livelihood like a mean loan shark, preying on the innocent. He says they have pushed the needy off the road, trying to to squeeze them out of society and force the poor of the land to hide. They have invaded land that is not theirs. They have hurt women and children. They have abused the innocent so that their victims, in verse 5, are displaced and left to wander about like wild donkeys in the desert, in verse 7, to spend the night naked without clothing, having no covering in the cold. Job is here lamenting the circumstances of those who are mistreated and showing us that part of lament is simply to name the injustice and place it before God. He speaks of those without shelter because they've been displaced by the wicked who are left out in the rain, huddling around a rock for want of shelter. And then he turns his attention back to the wicked in verse 9. 
spending a few verses just before that talking about the plight of, of the needy, those who are oppressed by them. He turns his attention back to the wicked in verse 9. It says they, they even go so far as to force widows as collateral for the loans that they need for their survival to give up their children as slaves. They snatch the fatherless from the breast of their mother and they take a pledge from the poor. Love, this is evil. And this should make us angry as it does Job. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing. They strip them of their dignity, even taking away the sheaves from the hungry. They allow them to press out oil and and tread the winepress of the rich, but then they send them away thirsty, taking advantage of the fact that they cannot find work and, and sending them away with little compensation. Job is here rehearsing the evils of the wicked who prosper in this world. And as he is rehearsing their evils, he is calling our attention to the groans of the dying in verse 12, to the souls of the wounded who cry out. And then he says at the end of the verse, yet God does not charge them with wrong. He's speaking there of of the wicked. Yet God does not charge these wicked people with wrong. And so he returns in verse 12 to what he said back in verse 1 with 10 verses of tyranny and suffering in between and says the day of judgment we do not see. And he goes on in in verses 13 to 17 to talk uh, about the blatant adultery and and murder of those who rebel against the light. Um, our, Our canons of Dort speak of the light of nature whereby we know certain things about God and about ourselves, and about what is moral and immoral through the light of nature by by virtue of being made in God's image. But Job is saying these men and women rebel against the light, and they refuse to do what God has plainly written on their conscience, but instead they rebel against it and embrace the darkness. There's this theme of light and darkness in in verses 13 to 17 where light comes up, I think, three times and then night or or twilight or darkness or the shadow of death in every verse from 14 to 17 emphasizing that these people of whom Job speaks have resisted the light of nature. They have resisted the light of God's revelation and chosen instead the darkness, killing the poor and the needy, destroying God's image bearers waiting until twilight when they they think that no one will see and breaking into the houses that they had spied out during the day to break apart marriages that God has joined together. You can see that the evil of of this this premeditated violation of God's law and and, um, destruction of, of marriages and of life. The evil of this adultery and murder and objectification of God's image bearers and and seeking to do those things in secret, believing that God does not see. That's the point that Job is making. That they do these things at night thinking no one will see. They even say that explicitly in verse 15, but they do not account for God. They do not realize that even though we cannot see God, Job 23, 9 He sees us. They're like the wicked of whom we sang in Psalm 94 who say God will not observe what they do, that he will not see the sins they pursue, the widows they murder, the fatherless snare, and strangers they kill thinking God does not care. 
But it goes on to say that later in that psalm, our God knows you fools, how senseless you are. For he who made all can see near and far is God who first fashioned your eye and your ear, unable to see you, unable to hear. And that's essentially what Job goes on to speak of in verses 18 to 25 of the coming judgment from God who does see these things. The friends, who he quotes in verses 18 to 20, they think that the portion of these wicked will come immediately, that the grave will consume them right away, and their wickedness will be broken like a tree. But Job says in verses 21 to 25, no, God does actually prolong the life of the mighty by his power. He, he gives them security, meaning he allows them to be secure. Then Job says at the end of verse 23, nevertheless, or or yet, his eyes are on their ways. They may be exalted for a little while, Job says, but eventually they'll be gone and brought low and they'll be cut off like heads of grain, like the, the heads of grain in Psalm 1, the chaff before the wind. Job is now speaking of the judgment that will eventually come. And though it sounds at points in this chapter like like maybe he doubts that this judgment ever will come, he is firm in his conviction that God sees all and will eventually uncover in the sight of all the secrets and hypocrisies of men and bring vengeance on the evil ones who tyrannized and oppressed and tormented his people and his image bearers in this world. And Job says, if this is not so, then who will prove me a liar? He is firmly convinced that God will, in the end, bring justice. But nevertheless, throughout this chapter, he laments the fact that this judgment has not yet come, and he longs for God to bring it. What Job is doing is is much like the Psalms of Lament, much like the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalms of Judgment, where where God's people take stock of the evil in this world. They cry out for the relief of those who are oppressed and for the judgment of the wicked. And all of this for which Job longs is part of that hope that he confessed back in chapter 19. That there would come a day of vindication, that of righteousness, all of this is part of the gospel. That one day all evil will be eradicated, every wrong will be made right, God's people who have been trampled underfoot will be lifted up, those who've wronged them will be exposed. As we confess in our Belgian confession, this is a very pleasant thought and a great comfort to the righteous and elect. Is at one at the same time God will vindicate his people as Job speaks of in chapter 23 and they will see him and at the same time he will rescue them from all evil and the judgment of the wicked. This is part of the gospel. Job prays for the coming of God's kingdom. He, he prays though he sees his redeemer yet through a glass dimly. He prays, come Lord Jesus. And destroy every force which revolts against you. And every conspiracy against your holy word. Destroy the devil's work. And vindicate your people. Let your kingdom fully come when you will be all in all. And we will see you. Job 23.3. And be acquitted by you the judge. Job 23.7. And will come forth as gold. And you will desire the work of your hands. This is what Job prays for. That he prays this as a believer. 
showing us what it means to pray, thy kingdom come, what it means to lament injustice, what it means to pray like the widow in Luke 18, 1 to 8, what it means to pray for the glory of God in salvation through judgment. This is not a pre-Christian prayer. This is not an un-Christian prayer, but this is a prayer of a man who James chapter 5 holds up for us as a preeminent example and pattern of being patient until the coming of the Lord. This is part of how we exercise that patience. This is part of how God works and molds that, that patience into us by praying, thy kingdom come, both for the vindication of the righteous and also for the judgment of the wicked till his kingdom fully comes and he will be all in all. Amen. Father in heaven, That same passage in James chapter 5 tells us that Job is among the prophets who proclaim your word. And so we pray this prayer with him, asking that you would hasten the day when the fullness of your kingdom comes and you will be all in all and the wickedness that we see all around us will be no more. The wars and trampling of the innocent in Eastern Europe, the the seizing of children that that happens in in parts of Africa where there's child soldiers, the adultery that, that takes place throughout the world where people think that no one sees even the harm that is done by by what people think are harmless secret sins in the dark of the night. Children, women who are are harmed and are trafficked. Lord, we lament the ways that the widow and the orphan are trampled. The ways that your people in many parts of the world are, are persecuted, and especially women and children, the ways that they suffer. We think of your church in Afghanistan. We think of your people in North Korea. We think of your church in Nigeria and India. And with Job and with the psalmist and with the church throughout the world and throughout the ages, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and bring justice. And deliver it, your people, who have treasured the words of your mouth like food for the stomach, who have followed your ways by faith in the Lord Jesus and long for the day when they will stand before you and come forth as gold. And Father, how we long for that day also. I pray that each of us and our children would know it, would understand that no matter what happens in this life, the most important question for us to be able to answer is how are we made right with you? How is it that we will know that day as a day of grace? And the way that we will is through the, the Savior that you have provided in your Son. And so we pray by your spirit uh, that you would help us to look to him in faith.